It would appear as though there's somewhat of a theme going on this morning. Yeah. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. I found those words in what Stacy said this morning. And now what Cherokee has shared during the communion message. Just irrevocable surrender to God. It's time, isn't it? To step up in faith, step out in faith. And you know what? That's exactly where our passage is this morning. I didn't plan any of that. I uh, didn't even pick out the songs. My wife picked out the song set this week, so I didn't even pick out the songs. But this is where we're at, and I believe God orchestrated all of it. So this is going to be an interesting ride this morning. We are still in the book of Romans. We will be in the book of Romans till Jesus comes. <laughs> Not true. Not true. We're actually going through the book of Romans very fast. I'm going to take an entire chapter today. Yeah, Romans chapter 3, the whole thing, the whole enchilada, okay? During World War II, the Battle of Britain, the Royal Air Force, their courageous defense of the skies over Britain foiled Hitler's plans for an invasion of the British Isles. Afterward, the Prime Minister at that time, Winston Churchill, said in the House of Commons, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few. But you know what? When we think of the cross, when we think of Christ and the person who died on that cross, what we really say is this, never in the history of the universe has mankind owed so much to just one. This is where we're at in our passage this morning. It's a sobering piece of scripture. There are no jokes, no lighthearted stories this morning, only the deep things of God that are life-altering and, I believe, world-changing. I would love to stand up here and tell funny stories to you this morning and make you laugh. And You know, there are times in our journey where that's, that's altogether appropriate, but then there are other times in our journey together where the weight of the truth of what Scripture is teaching us isn't about our comfort, it isn't about our entertainment. It's just about truth. Today is such a day. Today is about law. It is about righteousness. It is about sin. It is about atonement. It is about judgment and justice. It's heavy stuff, but it's important. It's even critical if we're to become all that Christ died for us to be. Anytime we talk about the law, it seems like Christianity it becomes all about the rules, doesn't it? And there are so many, many laws and many rules. I don't, I don't know if you realize, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613 that we're expected to keep perfectly. While I've read them all, because I've read the whole thing, okay, I promise you, I can't remember all of them, much less keep all of them. So how about if we do this? How about if we just reduce the, the rules to 10, the 10 commandments? Have you kept them perfectly? Every one of them perfectly? Some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I remember all of those either. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Then let's do this. Let's just reduce it to the two that Jesus said were the most important. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Kept them? Honestly, I haven't. In fact, I have yet to meet a single person 
who really understood that commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that would be so bold as to say that they've kept that command 24-7, 365 every year of their life. Therefore, if that's where we're at, then there is no question that we are all guilty under the law this morning, aren't we? Wow, Scott, that doesn't sound like very good news. (laughs) I know, I know. But that's okay because there's something else on the other side of that. It comes at the end of our passage, and we'll get to it, I promise. In the meantime, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read to you this morning out of the NIV. Now, I chose the NIV because it's pretty straightforward, and it's not too hard to understand. I would have much rather read to you out of the, the... Message Bible this morning, because it, you know, if you ever get a chance to read this passage in the Message Bible, it's just a beautiful thing. I love the way Eugene handles it, but um, it doesn't quite translate just exactly the same way, and so we're going to do it out of the NIV this morning. It's kind of a long passage, so buckle your seatbelt. We're going to dive in. Romans chapter 3. Remember, he's been talking about Jews and Gentiles in chapter 2. It's a little bit of comparison between the two, okay, but he's been talking about those differences, and making sure that they all understand that doesn't matter whether you're on the Jew side or the Gentile side of things, we all need God. He he continues in chapter 3. So what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike, are, are alike, are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Have, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. 
But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Interesting passage, right? There's a lot there, and it's actually not half as complicated as it might sound. It's also not half as bad as it might seem. Before we get into it, let's stop a moment and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, just, I am fascinated by your word because your word gives us hope. Even in the hard passages, Father, your word brings us hope hope. We don't have to live a life chained to the law in hopes that we can succeed in pleasing you. You went beyond the law for us. You made sure that pleasing you would come by relationship with you through your son. And that is what we want to focus on. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave us to try to figure out how to be redeemed before you, to live up to your righteousness. Instead, you imparted righteousness to us. We thank you for that. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning so we get the full impact of what this really means to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I, I have sort of weird notes for you this morning. I took a line off of Shakespeare. I'm not a real fan of Shakespeare kind of thing. I remember studying Shakespeare in high school, a little bit in college, but mostly in high school because I was in college prep English for high school, and that's what we did, Shakespeare. I didn't like it much. Too much weird language. But he had some interesting ideas. To be or not to be. First thing I want to talk about is to be or not to be Jewish. There is a theological debate among Bible scholars as to the place of the Jewish nation in God's overall plan of redemption for mankind. Some believe, currently believe, that the Jews are no longer a part of God's plan. All that changed when Jesus rose from the dead. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the final act of their part of the redemption history. In other words, Redemption, salvation, would come through the Jews. But once it got there, that was it for them. Now that salvation is based upon the blood sacrifice of Jesus, the Jews are just like any other race of people on the planet. Basically, that they are no longer the favored or chosen people of God. That is passed on to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
whether they are Jews or non-Jews. This idea has very strong support in Scripture. Then there are those who believe that the Jewish nation is still favored of God, that God chose them as his people and he will not forsake them. God doesn't make promises he doesn't keep. God is unchanging in his thoughts. Therefore, the Jews will always have a favored place in God's affections. This idea also has very strong support in Scripture. So which is true? Are they still favored and chosen of God, or has that place been given over to Christians and those Jews who accepted Jesus as their Messiah, what we would call a completed Jew? If we are to believe Scripture, folks, which is our only source of truth on the matter, then we have to say that it is and always has been both. The Jews are and always have been God's chosen people. Then what of us? Are we not chosen of God as well? Yes, clearly we are included as much as the Jews in God's favor. For according to Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, we've been grafted into that favor of God that he has on the Jewish nation, has always been chosen people to God. All those who belong to Jesus are favored as well. So is there anything special about being a Jew today? Does being Jewish get you into heaven? No, but not because anything has changed by Jesus coming. Faith in God has always been the requirement for salvation, even before Jesus. We are all saved by God's grace through faith in him. Abraham and every Jew after him who longed for God's appearing was justified before God based upon faith long before Jesus came to earth. Now, in our passage, it talks about that very thing, that God forestalled their judgment until such a time as Christ's sacrifice could be applied to them. The blood sacrifice of Christ was applied to them. It's in the middle of our passage. I forget exactly which verse it is. In other words, those who had faith in God, who sought God in the Old Testament, are saved on the same basis that we are saved, the blood of Jesus, which had yet to be spilled in our timeline. Now, how on earth does that work? It works because God doesn't exist in a timeline. God doesn't have a problem applying what hasn't happened in our timeline to what came before. It's not a big deal for him. Today, whether a person is born a Jew or a Gentile, we are all still saved by grace through faith, and that being faith in Jesus. So where does that leave the Jewish people today? Are they favored by God? Yes. They have an incredible rich history in God that is supposed to lead them to faith in God and faith in their Messiah, Jesus. They are still supposed to look into that heritage and discover the answer to the longing of their people for a Savior, a Messiah. To do so leaves them with the same choice as every other person on the planet, accept Jesus or reject him. That is the choice. 
So where is the favor? Where is the advantage to being a Jew? It is literally in their heritage. They have, more than any other race of people on the planet, a long history with God that speaks and points to Jesus. Above all other peoples, they should be the first to recognize the fulfillment of their own faith. The fact that most don't is disturbing, a little scary. For those that do, it's the most incredible thing. And they can't even, I've talked to some of them, they can't even describe what it means to have that fulfillment in their life, to have Jesus in their life. You know, the Old Testament scriptures are all about Jesus, from Genesis to Numbers to Deuteronomy to, to the Psalms to Isaiah, who talks about Jesus a lot, to Jeremiah, other prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, all of them talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. All of them give foreshadowed promises of the coming Messiah. It is why the Jews were looking for a Messiah, because it had been told over and over again that he would come. I, have, I, 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 I just have a list of about 33 verses from the Old Testament, and that is not extensive or complete by any means. If you want part of the list, I'll give it to you after service today because it's kind of extensive. I don't want to go through every scripture this morning. Scripture after scripture, though, talks about Jesus. And, and, and the ones that talk specifically about him, those are numerous. But when you start talking about the ones that are involved in all that he did, then it, it just expands geometrically. And you, you end up with literally hundreds and hundreds of verses of the Old Testament that are about Jesus and about the promises that he would bring. It is, it's an amazing thing to read through just some of them. Jesus was that promise of God. The New Testament is the record of the promise fulfilled and the future promises that are yet to come, all of which revolve around God's plan, purpose, and destiny for his children. It is all in and through Jesus. So what does that have to do with us? The Jews are definitely the chosen people of God, have been, always will be. And God longs for them in the same way that he longs for us, for them to pursue him through his son. Nothing has changed. Not from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Nothing has changed but what does that have to do with us? We're not Jewish, right? How, how does this passage really even apply to our lives? Because it seems like Paul is talking all about the Jews, right? It does apply to us. You see, by extension, we live in a country that still sees itself as a Christian nation. Believe it or not, the Barna Group, which is a Christian statistics company, last reported in 2011, just three, four years ago, that 84% of Americans still consider themselves to be Christians. That's still the same percentage as was recorded by the same group, the Barna Group, back in the 90s. It hasn't really changed. So we're talking, folks, that eight and a half people out of 10, okay, that you meet on the street, 
believe themselves to be Christians. I think that's pretty amazing. It's even more amazing when you stop and think about the fact that less than 10% of those people, not of the population total, but less than 10% of the 84% actually make it to church on a regular basis. We might bear the name or think that we bear the name Christian because we're born in America, but the truth of the matter is it's a really different thing than just being born into it. And that puts us in the same place as the Jews, believe it or not, because they had this idea in their brain that just because they were Jewish, just because they were born into a race of people, that somehow or another they had an end to heaven. They had an end to God. What they had was God's favor in giving them a rich heritage by which and through which they should have pursued him. Folks, are we different here? We have an incredible rich heritage in this country. America was, at least, whether it is anymore, it's hard to tell, but it was, at least, at the beginning, a Christian nation largely populated by Christians. And for whatever reason, as a nation, we've kept that idea while we've discarded what it really means to be one. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Again, the same statistics group, George Barna's statistics group, came up with these things as well about Christianity in America today. He says, number one, many professing Christians believe that people are inherently good, that our primary purpose is to enjoy life, and that our most important responsibility is to take care of our family. Now, those aren't bad things, okay, to believe, you know, that you should take care of your family and you should enjoy life. That's true. But are people inherently good? Not according to Scripture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's in the middle of our passage this morning, right? 81% believe that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. People think that it's in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. It's not Scripture. 49%, that's almost half, believe that the Bible teaches that money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. The love of money is the root of evil. But it's not money that's the root of evil. It's the love of money. It's the dividing of our passions. Jesus said you couldn't serve two masters. You'll either love one and despise the other, or it goes on. 72% of people believe that, uh, people that believe are blessed by God so they believe that they are blessed by God so they can enjoy life as much as possible. Well, that's not a bad concept in and of itself because we are blessed of God, okay? And it should lead to us enjoying life, enjoying the abundant life. But that's not why we're blessed of God. We're blessed of God because God is good even when we're not. He's faithful to his word even when we're not. 34% believe that the Bible is not accurate in all that it teaches. I believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, that it is absolutely accurate in what it teaches. And if you read the Bible, you have to come to that same conclusion because it says it about itself. 
40% believe that all religions teach equally valid truths. Folks, that's four out of 10 professing Christians that believe that other religions are just as good. 60% say that Satan is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. That is clearly not taught in Scripture. It's clearly taught that he's a person. 55% say that a person is gen- if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others, that they will earn a place in heaven. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Not going to happen. Okay? 44% believe that Jesus committed sins while he was on the earth. Well, there goes his ability to save us, if that's true, because he would be just as sinful in need of saving as we are. 61% believe that the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but a symbol of God's presence and power. Well, he is a symbol of God's presence and power, but only because he is a living entity. It's, you can't get away from that one. I'm sorry, he's part of the Godhead. 40% believe that after Jesus was crucified, he didn't physically return to life. There goes the power of the grave thing. You know, that's just shot in the foot too. 34% believe that there are some sins that even God cannot forgive. We'll talk about that one day. There is one sin that, that God chooses not to forgive. Not that he couldn't. He chooses not to forgive. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that sometime. But that's just one thing, and I'm not so sure you're capable of doing that. There's a lot of debate on that issue, too. But given those statistics, I would say that as a nation, we're not unlike the Jews when it comes to being favored or chosen by God, simply bearing the name Christian, but not really understanding what it really means, not really longing even for the things of God, not really even knowing God. We might know a bit about him, but if this is true, we don't know very much. When I say knowing God, folks, I am talking about having a personal saving relationship with God that makes a difference in the way that we think and the way that we live. Now, what am I getting at? I'm getting at just this. Being born a Jew doesn't save anyone. Ethnicity doesn't save anyone. Being born in America doesn't make anyone a Christian. If it does anything at all, it only makes us more culpable, which means responsible, okay, for what we do know and or what has been made available to us because of our heritage. The Jew, because they had the law of God, would be judged by the law. That's not good news because there was no way for them to be righteous before God based upon that law. They all broke the law in some way or another. Their heritage actually worked against them in that respect. In the same way, thinking you're a Christian just because you live in America doesn't help you. In fact, it works against you. As an American, you have more and better access to the Bible, to churches, to a host of other resources than any other nation on the planet. Not to mention the fact that your freedom to worship is protected here in a way that almost half the world's population doesn't have. If the Jews are without excuse, how much more are we? So what do we do about this? Do we just accept this idea? There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have 
together become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. Do we just succumb to that? Oh, well. It'd be pretty fatalistic if we did, right? That is the mindset of many in the church today, though. Just get through this life. Heaven will be better if we can just endure until we get there. Listen, Paul is quoting here from the Old Testament. The psalmist wrote those words in describing the condition of the Jews in his day, a people who were not interested in the things of God. And it does sound a bit like America today. The difference is this, though. We live in a New Testament church. Look at verse 21. This is where the tide turns. There's no one righteous. True. Not even one. But there is one who is righteous, Jesus. And by his life, death, resurrection, he has made a pathway for us to walk into righteousness. It is in a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus that we can turn the tide of that passage in our lives and the lives of other people. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, you are a chosen people. Folks, Gentiles, you, us, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The difference is in knowing what matters. Listen, I know that this sounds like a, a very negative passage of Scripture, but the good news of Jesus Christ is not negative. It is the good news. Sometimes it's important that we see the contrast. You realize that black is a great background to bring out bright colors? You can see bright colors far better if you have a black background. This negative picture that Paul is painting here is just a backdrop for the good news. He wants it to stand out. He wants you to look at verse 21 and go, whoa, wow, awesome, amazing. He wants you to see that in all of its splendor. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. God has a very strange idea of what justice is. Justice to God was Jesus hanging on a cross for you. Because in his forbearance, and this is what he's talking about, the Old Testament saint, his forbearance, that forbearance, that idea that he put it off, okay, because he knew it was coming. In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So all of the saints of, of the Old Testament basically were in, um, I, I guess the best way to, to describe it would be a holding pattern, okay? You know when an airport gets a little too full? You know, they send the planes around in a holding pattern before they can land, okay? The Jews as a nation were in a holding pattern before they could land, okay? The idea being there that the ones that were, had pursued God, the ones who had died in faith, okay, were waiting for that time when their Savior that they had looked forward to would come and deliver them. 
it's a really interesting part of theology. I, I love this part of theology because it's really kind of bizarre, but it's really cool, you know? They got to go to a place called paradise, a place called Eden. It kind of takes you back to, to Genesis. But that's where they stayed. And if you, if you rejected God as a Jew, okay, you got to go to the place of torment, which is kind of a, a precursor to the lake of fire that we find in Revelation. But if, if you were a, a person who pursued God, loved God, went after God, then you went to this place called Eden, this place of paradise, sometimes called the bosom of Abraham. And that's where you stayed. And, and, and what's so cool about that is that the Bible tells us that after Jesus died, he descended to Hades, had the keys, unlocked the door, and then he ascended, took them all with him. And it's really cool because when, when you see what happens in the New Testament story of Jesus' resurrection, you ever wonder why all those people popped out of the grave? It was reported all around Jerusalem that there were saints walking around, spirits walking around dead people walking around. Jesus wasn't the only one who returned. Why? Because he went down in those three days that he was dead. He went down, unlocked the gates of what was called Sheol, okay, that whole place, and of the side of that that was paradise, he released those people. And it showed up on the earth as well in people walking around that were supposed to be dead. It's a really interesting story. Kind of, you know, sci-fi I guess, in, in a way. That's what he did for us as well. He unlocked what was necessary, the keys that were given to the kingdom, the ones that Adam and Eve gave to the enemy, folks, so that he had reign over this, this earth. Jesus took back. And now we get to live in that freedom if we choose it. It's just, it's a cool story, and, and, you know, sometime near Easter, I'll go over it again and make sure we all got it, but that'll wait till Easter. The good news is that we have this righteousness available to us through Jesus right now, and for good measure, God throws in the truth that even the Old Testament saint was saved by the blood of Jesus, even though Jesus had yet to live in their lifetime. They have his blood applied to them by a God who stands outside of time. Remember, Revelation 13.8 states that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, long before we were around, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, how does that work? Again, God stands out of time. It's a little hard for us to wrap our head around that one, but it's true. God applied to the Old Testament saint the blood of Jesus that would be spilt before it ever even happened in our timeline. He did so because of his grace and by reason of their faith. That means that they are still saved by grace through faith. All of this boils down to just one thing as far as it concerns us today. There is available to us an amazing grace that overcomes every sin, every failure, every obstacle between us and God. That grace is accessed by faith and only faith not by what we do, not by what we say, and not by what we think. By that, I mean you cannot do enough good things 
in this life to merit going to heaven. You can't say a bunch of words like praying a sinner's prayer to gain access into heaven. You can't think enough good thoughts or even enough correct thoughts about God to gain access into heaven. In other words, the correctness of your theology or your thoughts about God will not gain you access to heaven. We are not saved because we got all our theology right. If that were true, we'd all be in trouble. We are saved by having a right relationship with God. God is not impressed by our good works. Even great works can't cancel out our shortcomings, our sin. God isn't impressed by our words because he knows our heart of hearts, our inward most thoughts. Nothing is hidden from him. As far as our theology is concerned, well, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were the most learned in the scriptures, and they were the ones that Jesus called whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but they were rotting corpses on the inside. There is only one thing that we can be sure of in this whole mess, and that is that God wants our hearts, our minds, and our bodies to be fully His, to be engaged in the pursuit of Him. What Cherokee was talking about earlier, getting things back on track, God is interested in just that. Do you have to get it right all the time? No. That's why grace is needed, because we need that, because we can't get it right all the time. Actually, we can, we just don't. It's not a matter of percentage either, you know? If I get it right most of the time, then I'll be okay, God? No, God requires 100% getting it right all the time. That's why Jesus needed to die for us, so that we could have the 100%. God wants, folks, all of me, all the time, for all of him. You get that? God wants all of me, all of the time, for all of him. That means to love him with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength. That is the commandment, plain and simple. What does that mean? It means that every part of my life is to be surrendered to him. My time, my talents, my treasures, my relationships, my work, my hopes, and my dreams, all of me for all of him. Perhaps it's best said by Oswald Chambers in his writing about the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 1.20. Paul says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is what Oswald writes about that kind of surrender the kind that Paul's talking about in that passage. He says, Paul says, my determination is to be my utmost for his highest. To get there is a question of will, not of debate or of reasoning, but a surrender of will, an absolute and irrevocable surrender to that point. Shut out every other consideration and keep yourself before God for this one thing only my utmost for his highest. I am determined to be absolutely and entirely for him and for him alone. Listen, folks. This is a passage of Scripture that's really sobering. I get it. I understand. Is God asking a lot of us? Yes. In fact, he's asking everything. Everything. All of us, all of us, for all of him.
I believe that until we come to terms with that choice, we will always struggle with the abundant life that Jesus promised. I just believe it. We will always question why bad things happen to good people. We will always question our hard circumstances until we come to grips with the idea that it is all about all of us for all of him. The abundant life isn't about the quality of your circumstances, folks. It is about the life we live in our circumstances. You want an abundant life, a great life? You need to overcome submitting or surrendering to your circumstances and begin to surrender to God and to God alone. Make the determination to be your absolute utmost for his highest. Seek him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Lay down your life so he can live his life through you. Then you will find life worth living. If you're here this morning and you've never made that step of faith, today is the day of your salvation. It's the day of your new life. Don't wait, just do it. If you're already saved this morning, which most of you are, I'm sure, but you know, you know you have things in your life that you're still holding on to, that you need to surrender. Get it done. Today is the day to walk in a different life. Maybe you need to be like Cherokee and just kind of get things back in order and, and recommitted, moving forward again. Get it done. There's no reason to wait. Holding on to those things only keeps you from the best life that you could live. Become a person that is in pursuit of the heart of God, and you will be a person after God's own heart. It's really that simple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you as a people who need to be reminded that this whole thing is really about us being totally surrendered to you, our utmost for your highest. That our abundant life is really predicated on the idea that we get that right. That we are in pursuit of loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we are not willing to allow anything to get in the way of that. That this journey that we're on, this path that we're taking, is designed for us to live the best life that could possibly be imagined, no matter the circumstances of our life. To walk in victory and triumph, in peace and in rest, in love and in joy, in the midst of the most disturbing hard circumstances a person can live through and to still have the peace that passes understanding, to still enjoy the love that knows no end. If you're sitting there this morning and, and you haven't even taken the first step, it's time. It's time. And, and, and yes, it begins with words. It begins with declaring over your life that you belong to him. But that is not where it ends. No amount of words can get you into heaven. It's all about the heart. 
So if you haven't made that commitment, then pray this simple prayer, but don't pray it if, if your heart isn't ready, if you're not going to go for it, because it'll do you no good. You need to be serious about this. That's why this passage is so sobering, because it makes us serious. But if you're ready for that leap of faith, and it's not even a big one, it's just a step everyone can take, then pray with me. Something like this. Heavenly Father, I give my life to you. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving me. I repent of the path that I've been on. And I joyfully and willingly follow hard after you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. For the rest of us this morning who've made that commitment sometime in our past, I want you to think about this. I want you to pray about it with me this morning. I'm going to take a cue from Cherokee here, and we're just going to talk about committing. Would you pray this? Heavenly Father, I commit myself once again to you. I want my utmost for your highest. I hold nothing back. I want nothing more than to pursue you. And I will stop at nothing. No barrier, no circumstance to pursue Jesus. My life is yours. Amen? Amen. Amen.